This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby, who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of five, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, a practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 211, which is airing in mid-August of 2021. We are going to be talking work tips today. Some of our favorite work strategy and effectiveness efficiency techniques. And then we'll be talking with Helena Weiss-Duman, who will do just a short segment with us on how to have better meetings. So a lot of great tips there. Looking forward to diving in. It's kind of back to school season. We think of almost all of August as back to school season, even though my kids aren't going to back till mid-September, basically. (laughs) And while most adults are not starting school, some are, but most aren't, it does always help to think about how we can do things more efficiently, more effectively, right, Sarah? I mean, you, you like that back to school energy for this sort of thing. Of course. I feel like it's your bonus new year, like that hits, you know, just when you need it most, <laughs> when you're not going to make it all the way until January. So yeah, perfect time to just sort of think through how you're doing things and whether there's anything that needs tweaking or optimizing. Exactly. So we'll go ahead and start with our list of top 10 work tips. I'll say one, Sarah will respond with her 
takes on it and and we'll get through it there. Uh, So the first one, not a surprise to anyone who's been reading me for a while, but is to plan your upcoming work weeks on Fridays. So Friday, set a little bit of time and think about what are you going to accomplish by the end of the next week. List this all out and plot it out on your schedule. I would also recommend planning tight and then planning light. So aim to do anything big on Monday or Tuesday and try to leave the latter part of the week more open because stuff is going to come up or the big stuff that you put for Monday and Tuesday might take longer than expected. So when you have some days that are relatively more open later in the week, you have to place to put things without falling behind. Sarah, you you are a Friday work planner as well, aren't you? I am. And I was just going to kind of piggyback on that. Not only should you think about building it into your routine, this sort of planning session, but you probably need to actually schedule it. I mean, it may not be true as much for Laura because she works for herself. And if she kind of knows her routine is that on on Fridays at three, she's going to plan her week and that's just a standing thing. Great. But for me, I feel like meetings are always trying to fill in every available crack and crevice. And if I don't preemptively block out my kind of wrap up weekly planning time, then it can easily just not happen. And then it's not great. So I mean, for me, this can be challenging. I don't always have large swaths of time on Fridays. I actually just added back in half a day clinic on Fridays, like about two weeks of the month. So that means by the time I'm done my notes, there's like not tons of time, but I do see the value in it. And honestly, I'm willing to not have Friday be an early relaxed day so I can really think through my next week and get that done and kind of have a nice clear slate before the next week. But I do have to block it in very intentionally. But honestly, when people get in the habit of doing this, a designated weekly planning time and really think through the upcoming week, it becomes like a superpower (laughs) because things are less likely to catch you off guard. You make space for the things that matter to you. So you're not like, well, another week and I didn't get to these things that are my priorities. So Definitely Friday planning. Also on Friday, tip number two, do a calendar triage, looking at what is on your calendar for the upcoming week. Is there anything that shouldn't be there? Anything that could take less time? Anything that someone else can do? You may be able to buy yourself an hour or more in a few minutes. Because one of the things you'll see is like, oh, wait, there's a meeting that's gotten rescheduled four times. Maybe if it's gotten rescheduled four times, I should just put it out of its misery. Like it's never going to happen. So let's just get it off the calendar and acknowledge that instead of continually trying to go back and forth and find a place to put it. Or if you see that three people on your team are in the same meeting, well, maybe you could just share information afterwards, right? Like this is the sort of thing that maybe you could triage in a strategic thinking situation. But what happens when people get so busy they don't look at their calendars ahead of time. They don't think about these things strategically. And then you just wind up tromping from thing to thing. You're like middle schoolers changing classes, like by two o'clock, by three o'clock, by four o'clock. And it's like, well, did you actually have to do all of those? Did all those meetings absolutely have to happen? Did they all have to take an hour? I don't know, but you're not going to ask that in the moment. You want to ask it ahead of time. And the funny thing is I've had people do this exercise in my workshops and speeches sometimes. And I would say that in a couple of minutes, 25 to 30% of the people in the room can get themselves an hour over the next week. And I think if I gave them more time, a lot higher percentage would find some time. So it's really worth doing. 
I love that, especially focus on meeting bloat. I've actually noticed that recently people have started to figure out how they could streamline meetings. I know that's what the topic of this this episode is about, but you know, by sending kind of minutes and documents ahead of time and then saving the meeting time for actual discussion and assigning of action items, you can turn an hour-long meeting into a 20-minute meeting and then, wow, 40 minutes to do Yay, something else. 40 minutes. Yay. All right. Number three. Make yourself a to-do list for each workday before you leave work the night before. And what you can do is look at the day's appointments and what you want to accomplish and block out a schedule that takes all of this into account. For instance, if you have something you think will take 90 minutes of focused work and you have a 10 o'clock meeting, you might be best off doing that focused block from, say, 8 to 9.30. You know, even if you normally start work at, let's say, 8.30, it might be worth starting at 8 in order to get it done on that particular day and maybe shift your hours at some other point. But if you don't look at your schedule and you don't have your to-do list for the day, you won't be able to think about these strategic things. And you'll be like, wait, I've got this 90-minute project I've got to do and it's four o'clock. Now what? <laughs> so make the list the day before, look at the schedule, and you'll be able to get it all in. Personally, I am more of a fan of making the list early the morning of because I just happen to think and plan so much better in the morning. So just an alternative to the night before, part of my everyday morning routine is basically looking at my calendar for the day and just road mapping out what I'm going to do and what I'm going to try to accomplish that day. And so, you know, that's an alternative to the night before is if you prefer to do it the morning of. All right. So we've got tip number four, which is match the right work to the right time. So for most people, we tend to be more focused and productive in the morning. So that means that you want to do your work that requires the most intense thought in the morning, not in the afternoon. <laughs> that's the time that you can do the work that's a little bit less intense or even things that you know you're going to do anyway, right? Like you will go to that status meeting regardless of how you feel, whereas you probably won't work on really brainstorming that great new idea for your new client at 2.30 when you are tired. So <laughs> try to do the important stuff first leave the less intense stuff for later. Do not clear the decks. I know a lot of people have sort of things they need to get to in the day and they're like, oh, well, I'll get to the big stuff as soon as I get rid of all the little things off my to-do list. But the problem is we all run out of steam. Next thing you know, you never get to the big stuff. You're saying don't clear the decks in the morning. Yeah, don't, don't clear waste. the decks in the morning, right? Yes, agree. Because clearing the decks can always take longer than you think it's going to take. And next thing you know, Mid-morning, you're like, oh, I'm hungry for lunch. And then there goes the day. All right. Number five is to take breaks. So if you find yourself dragging, it is much better to get up and walk around than to lose 45 minutes down an internet rabbit hole. Uh, one of my tranquility by Tuesday rules is to move by 3 p.m. And if that is at all possible in your life, I think you will see some major productivity benefits. I find most people need some sort of break by then anyway and a physical one will boost energy. I'm also a fan of taking a real lunch break, actually get up, get away from your desk for a minute or two, or, you know, stop doing what you're doing, and then you can refocus afterwards. I still personally love to take walks at lunch when I can at work. It is not always feasible, but yesterday I did not finish all my notes, but I am very grateful that I went outside for 40 minutes, even though the heat index was 99 degrees, because I did feel way better afterwards. And honestly, if I hadn't done that, my time outside for the day would have been zero and my steps would have been about 1500 and it just doesn't feel good. So I yeah, so highly better. agree with that one. Yeah. All right. So now the next one, number six, 
If the day has drifted, and it often does, but even if it hasn't, even if it's been perfect, take some time, 60 to 90 minutes before you plan to stop working for the day to review what has happened and what still needs to happen, because that way you can make a plan to deal with it and make sure that you are not you know, wasting that last hour doing stuff that actually doesn't need to be done for tomorrow when there is stuff that does need to be done for tomorrow. The next tip, seven, if you will be, it's related to this, but if you will be doing a split shift, because for some reason that last 60 minutes, you're not getting through everything, or you are intentionally leaving work at a very early time, let's say 3.34 in the afternoon to do the after school shift with your kids, consciously knowing you are going to be doing work at night after they go to bed, make sure you have a plan for the split shift. Because you wouldn't get through a 1,000 email backlog from 9 to 5 during the day, and you're not going to get through it from 8 to 10 at night either. So don't set that out as your goal, because that's how people wind up staying up all night or feeling frustrated in general. So say, well, what are the two to three things that actually need to be accomplished as part of this split shift? And if there isn't anything, then maybe you don't have to do it. I know that the split shift is how a lot of our listeners do work long hours and manage to preserve time with young children who go to bed relatively early, but you may not have to do it every night. So that's good to keep in mind. Okay, I have two comments there. First of all, if you are the kind of person where if your day drifts, you find it psychologically difficult to get back on track, I see you, I am you. So I I like this tip. And I'll think about this tip, but I don't always find it as easy to execute in real life. Maybe if I take more time to kind of acknowledge and forgive myself for the drift and think about how I can care for myself by maybe getting something else done, if, if one thing was sort of hitting a dead end, things would be better, or maybe even just a longer break and then, and then getting back to something else or looking ahead on my calendar, how I can swap things to fit where I am that day. I, it can be hard, especially if what has set everything adrift was was stressful. And often it is. I mean, truthfully, it's some work emergency or someone's in distress and needs help unexpectedly, or it's a kid emergency and it can be hard. But I agree that the more calmly one can kind of go through and think about how you can best recover, the better. And then my other comment is that I hate the split shift, so it's okay if you do too. I will do almost anything to avoid it. The last thing I ever want to do at night is do work related to my like actual job or even the podcast, really. 5 a.m. is a different story. I can bang things out at 5 a.m. So I guess it's a different kind of split shift. And maybe that's kind of my answer. But I also would much rather work late on occasion. And I'm now very lucky that I can when I need to. Do I do it every night? No, I don't want to because I don't want to miss that kid time. But if I need to come home at like 7.30 on a random Tuesday, our nanny does not mind. She is flexible in that way. And a lot of days she's able to get a later start due to school. So for me, that works better. And that's one alternative if you absolutely hate whipping out your laptop after the kids are asleep. Yeah. The early morning is, in fact, a split shift. It's just a different side of the sleeping. <laughs> you know, it's still it working. so different. It's, it's still working when the coffee. kids are asleep, right? Like that is, if that is the split, you have split your major chunk of work into a morning and a day or a day and an evening. And hopefully not an early morning and a day and an evening because then that's just crazy. <laughs> so pick one. <laughs> All no, right, let's just sense. yeah, let's just pound through these last ones and then get to our ad break. So number seven is to batch the little things on Friday. So through the week, little stuff will come up that is not urgent but still needs to get done. Put all of these in a small window, ideally on a low 
opportunity cost day like Friday, but another time is fine too. Or you can also do, say, 30 minutes each day where you are batching the little things that come up during the day. So you can power through them all at once and without them being distractions the rest of the time. Because I find this last part is the slightly more pernicious aspect of this. Like we have eight things on our to-do list and we're like, oh, you know, it's, it's hard to do this big project I'm working on. Hey, I could just go order that birthday present. Or I could just go respond to that email about a meeting six weeks from now. Or I could just go fill out that form that HR sent me. And we do these things not because they necessarily have to be done, but it feels good to cross them off. And then you feel like you've done something. Whereas if you're sitting and wrestling with a big project, you may not have gotten anything done. So we sort of give ourselves those easy wins, but sometimes it's better to sit with the hard stuff for a while to allow that deep work time to be there and then to batch the little things at some other point when you can just get through them and get them done. Number nine is to commit to making space for the work you love. Now, we have all seen this. It is so easy to spend days, weeks, years on the random stuff in your job. You know, you fill your day with figuring out what meeting is going on when and how do I get to everything on time and, you know, what's the logistics of all this? And you feel like you're never doing the stuff of your job. But whatever it is that drew you to your job deserves a space on your schedule. So when you're doing that Friday planning, make sure that you have carved out space for the stuff of your job, the part that makes you happy, that makes you you know, want to tell people about it when you're seeing them and meeting them, that deserves to have a place there. I'm curious, Sarah, what, what is that favorite part for you? Well, as you're speaking, I'm like reflecting. I mean, I think developing real one-on-one relationships that are meaningful, either with patients that I get to know over the years, because I am lucky that I'm in that kind of longitudinal, well, lucky for me, because I, I like that longitudinal specialty. It's so fun to see some of these families you know, with children with chronic illness, like year after year and really get to know them. And then the same with, with residents, you know, especially when, when I feel like I can help them. I don't always feel that way because there are challenges inherent in that job. But when I feel like I can be helpful, it's, it's really fun. Yeah. For me, it's writing. I'm sure anyone would know that. I really love working on book projects. So I'm really happiest when I'm deep into writing a chapter. And I'm fortunate right now that that's what I'm spending my time doing. Uh, And finally, our tip number 10 is that yes, working moms, can go to happy hours. So don't neglect the people part of your job. Sarah just said that people is what makes it really fun. And I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. So make sure that you don't tell yourself like, oh, I don't have time for it. I have to, you know, race home every single day. I can't have lunch. I need to work through lunch because I can't socialize because working moms can't do this. We have to get out of here. I see that on time logs. People tell me about they're so efficient. Like, oh, I shut myself in my office and work through lunch. And that's why I've able to leave 15 minutes earlier every day and I never talk to my colleagues. I'm like, come on. All right. It's pretty short-sighted. You don't have to go to anything every night, every day, whatever. Nobody wants to do it every day. But if you never socialize with your colleagues and you don't become part of the loop, people don't really trust you as much because they don't know you as much. It makes it harder to advance. It makes it harder to figure out this sort of unofficial stuff that's going on. And knowing that unofficial channel of information is often what does intend to save us tons of time. Like you're like, don't work with that guy, right? That's the kind of information you get at the happy hour. He's a disaster. Like all of his projects are terrible. Like you want to know that, right? And by doing the socializing, you get to know that. So working moms can go to happy hours, not every night, but occasionally. Sarah, are you going to happy hour? Well, not anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. No one is right now. But you know what I mean, the metaphorical happy hour. Yes, absolutely. And when we were able to do things in person, which I hope we will again soon, 
you know, sometimes I would dread going to something because I just felt tired or whatever, but I never, ever regretted it. And and you're right. I mean, that's that's what makes work fun is the the relationships and the building them, you know, outside of the work environment sometimes. So fully endorse going to social events. There we go. Well, those are our top 10 work tips. We're going to take a quick ad break and then we'll be back with Helena Weiss-Duman talking about how to have a great meeting. Well, I am here with Helena Weiss-Duman, who teaches meetings and other such things over at Berkeley. So, uh, Helena, how about you introduce yourself to our listeners? Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm Helena Weiss-Duman. I teach project management and leadership at UC Berkeley Extension. My work comes from a lot of uh, herding cats and planning lots of meetings as a project management consultant. I produce conferences and professional training programs for um, Stanford, MIT, Yale, Berkeley are some of my clients. And I also help run a 40-person department um, that produces events and communications for alumni and donors at UC Berkeley. Yeah, so we are excited to hear about your tips for running good meetings. (laughs) So, I mean, we could start with what makes so many meetings so bad? Lack of planning is the main thing. People don't put enough strategy into it. People are running from meeting to meeting. And it does take a lot of work to put together a good meeting, but it's worth it in the long run. So there's unclear objectives. The wrong people are in the room. So you need to put some thought in ahead of time. So what does need to happen ahead of time in order for there to be a good meeting? Okay, I'm going to talk about uh, four things that need to be in your agenda to to up-level your agenda. First of all, there needs to be clear objectives for each agenda item. You can't just put a topic. It should be really, what is the objective of having that item on your agenda? Is it to share information, collect information, make a decision? So really having an objective and being clear about that. Also, you want to time box things. You want to give everything a budget, a time allotment, and not go over that and make sure that you stick to that. Also, people need the background. They need relevant information, data, reports, so that they can come to the meeting informed and knowing what they are giving the context. And then also the process. Who's leading that topic? What is the process for making a decision? Are you going to have a vote? Is there going to be consensus? Is the leader going to just make a decision based on the discussion? So just knowing the process. So those are the four things that, you, that really uplevel your agenda. Yeah. And once you're, I mean, with the meeting itself, are, are there ways to think about what should occur during the meeting? Like devote a certain number of minutes to an opener or, you know, a certain number of minutes at the end to recap? Uh, what, what should we make sure we have in the meeting itself? What I like to do is start with a a little bit of connection. I don't call it an icebreaker. It seems to be a bad word, but uh, some connection, some way to build trust, build psychological safety with your team. And that really depends on, is this a brand new team that, or is this, you know, your weekly direct reports meeting? So it really depends on that. And then another component at the end of every meeting is to go over the action items that were decided upon, the who, the what, the when of the, the action items and any decisions that were made and make sure those are communicated. So those are some basics that um, I like to do at every meeting. 
Excellent. Well, how about giving us a few out of the box openers? I mean, you know, so we we won't call them icebreakers <laughs> since we, we're not supposed to use that word for some reason. But you know, I, I assume most people just say like, "How was your weekend?" And that's obviously one thing you can do. But what what are some other things you could do to start a meeting? So the principles that I have for these type of connection exercises are to make them easy. Self disclosing may mean that people have a wide range; they can go deep or go light make it interesting and also non-competitive. So, you know, you don't want to ask, oh, what was the best vacation you've ever been on? Because that is, that's, that's a hard one. And mine was better than yours. Ha ha. (laughs) You have to think about it. But uh, so here are some of three of my go-tos. The first one is what's your hometown? And it could be the hometown. And I, I make that broad as well. It could be, where are you from? Or, you know, where were you born? So it doesn't have, you know, people can self-disclose however they want to do that. But you can get a lot of rich information about where someone is from. Something about their name. So I ask them, tell me about your first name, your last name, your nickname. Do you like your name? Does your name mean anything? And you can get a lot of interesting things about people's ethnicities, their backgrounds, what, you know, it's just really interesting. And then another one, I, uh, what is a favorite holiday tradition? So that's another one where um, you can get some, usually people, it puts a smile on someone's face when they think about something that they enjoy. And also um, you can learn a lot about their background. Yeah. And I love those that you can disclose as much as you want. Like you don't have to share your deepest, darkest secret. Although if you want to, it's that kind of group. I mean, I guess you, you really could but probably not for the Tuesday morning status meeting. Uh, So, I mean, one of the questions we get from listeners a lot is like, okay, we can run good meetings ourselves. Hopefully many of our listeners do. But if you are not personally running the meeting, is there anything you can do either beforehand or during to improve the process if it's maybe not going as well as you might hope? Yes, if I'm invited to a meeting, I ask for the agenda in advance. And I ask, um, usually I say, hey, I see we have a meeting. I want to make sure I'm prepared. Is there an agenda? So that's my polite way of saying, where's the agenda? What are we <laughs> Give me the agenda. <laughs> yes. So that's one way I prepare. I also check if everyone who is supposed to be there has responded. So I, at least in our calendars, we can see if the right people are in the room. And if the right people are not in the room, I, I would suggest that we postpone or you know have a different that time. Um, I offer to record action items. So I offer to say, hey, do you mind if I record the action items? Or, you know, that helps some people if you, you offer to be the scribe. And then I um, help the facilitator by objecting to tangents. <laughs> so some of this, this is helpful for me when I'm running a meeting and someone says, wait a minute, we're off topic. So I could say, you know, in a polite way, you know what, that, that's a good point. Can we have another meeting with this, this or can we do this offline or I'd be happy to talk to you later, but I think we're running out of time. So just have your go-to phrases in a polite way to, to help out the facilitator. Those are great ideas. Do you have particular, I mean, you've been in so many meetings and seen so many yourself. Do you have particular meeting pet peeves, uh, things that you see happen be- poorly in many meetings? Yes. People ask for input without any context or preparation. People say, what do you think we should do about that? And people are just deer in headlights. And um, especially some people don't mind thinking on their feet and they process out loud. And some people really need some time to reflect. And it's just really not thoughtful if you don't allow people the time to process 
and come to a meeting without preparation. Everyone needs context, background to formulate their thoughts if you want them to really participate and contribute. The other thing that drives me crazy is no participation. So when people just run through their slides, I'm like, that could have been an email, record it for me, send it to me in a video, and I can watch it at two times speed. If there's no participation, I try to bow out as much as possible. Yeah. It's like you were invited here to a theater show as opposed to an actual meeting. So are there any differences? I mean, over the past year and a half, I mean, so many people have had new experiences with virtual meetings that many people just didn't do before. I mean, you had the occasional conference call, but it wasn't sort of the normal mode of interacting. Are there any key differences between virtual meetings and in-person meetings that we should keep in mind and that might help us have better virtual meetings going forward? The one thing I would highlight is this silent, yes, people don't say anything. People are assuming that they're agreeing with what is being said. So that is very misleading. So one of the things that I do to make sure that people are participating and that I get their input is it's called the gradients of agreement scale. And so I put this at the bottom of my agenda. It's a one through eight scale. And I will put the proposal in the chat. For example, we propose that we have a four hour retreat on August 9th. And so the scale means one, they wholeheartedly endorse it. Two, they agree with a minor point of contention. Three, support with reservations. Four, abstain. Five, more discussion or time needed. Six, don't like, but will support. Seven, serious disagreement. And eight, veto. So that way, everyone in the meeting, I'll put that proposal. August 9th, department retreat. And then I wait for everyone in the meeting to give me their little vote. It's very quick. It's very easy. But then you can quickly see if there was any kind of reservation. And then that will be brought up instead of just saying, okay, we're August 9th. We all agree, right? Okay, let's go on to the next thing. So the silent yes is is very tricky. And you need to make sure that you make sure you are getting everyone's input. Awesome. Well, those are great tips. We really appreciate it. Can you um, tell listeners where they can find you if they're looking for more information about you and about good meetings in general? Yes, you can find me at LinkedIn, Helena Weiss-Duman, and send me uh, a message and I would love to talk more about meetings. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Helena. Take care. Well, that was great. Now we're back with the question part. This question comes from a listener who has a two and a half year old and just found out she is pregnant with her second baby. Yay. She says with her first, she was in the middle of residency and did not take very good care of herself, didn't exercise and so forth. And as a result, she believes that delivery and recovery were perhaps tougher than they could have been. She has since started taking better care of herself, exercising more regularly, She says she doesn't run as much or as long as the two of you, but about four weeks ago during her pregnancy was able to do two to three miles at a 9.30 to 10 minute mile per pace and is inspired to try to keep this up during pregnancy. She says, but oh my goodness, the morning sickness and fatigue are so much worse for me this time around. I do not remember it being like this last time, though who knows. I've been able to do some walks, yoga, and a few low impact Peloton bike rides But when I tried to run, I couldn't sustain my former pace and it did not feel good. I was prepared for things to be harder or slower, but not this early in my pregnancy. So I have two questions. One is, do you have advice or experience about this issue? Should I push through and it will get better? Wait until closer to the second trimester. 
or will she have lost all her fitness by then? Or accept that I'm already going to have to just convert back to walking, running, very slow running. And the second question is any gear for running while pregnant. So Sarah, what do you have for us? Yeah, I felt pretty passionately about this. You're, that's like a lot. That's like fast. Like that's fast for me now. I mean, or like a good pace for me now. And I think there is absolutely no value in pushing yourself past comfort during pregnancy. I don't see why, unless you're an Olympic athlete and have a coach that's like telling you to do that. And even then I would like question it. I mean, you should do what feels good because our bodies thankfully are smart and they probably, you know, tell us what is good for us, especially during a time like pregnancy. There are physiologic changes that happen very early in pregnancy. So people think about like being weighed down by the baby, but actually there's changes in how your hemoglobin, you know, carries oxygen and all sorts of things that happen very, very quickly that would explain changes that you might be feeling while you're working out. And I think that, you know, you mentioned like, do I just have to resort to run walking? I think run walking is wonderful. I don't think there's any like negative connotation to doing that during pregnancy or any other time. I do feel like I'm reaching a phase in my life where I'm like really rethinking goals around exercise. And I kind of even questioned some of my prior goals when I was younger. Yes, it was fun to train for races sometimes. But at the same time, sometimes I think there was a little too much focus and too much stress because the whole point is to stay healthy, stay active, stay fit, enjoy it, move our bodies. And I think there is no time to embrace that more than during pregnancy. So do what feels good. Take breaks when you need to. And in terms of gear, I don't even know if this is still a thing, but I really loved the Juno bras by Brooks. They had like these Velcro straps and everything felt very locked in tight. And so they were my favorite during pregnancy, as well as some really cheap like yoga pant type shorts from Old Navy that were maternity that had a band that folded over. So nothing fancy, but all of that worked pretty well for me. Yeah, I would say that, you know, the first trimester is often a lot tougher from an exercising perspective than the second, though. I would say that many people do find that some light exercise helps with the feelings of fatigue and morning sickness. So your mileage may vary, but you might try to get a few little light run walks in and see if you feel better afterwards, because that can motivate you to continue. The second trimester probably will be better. You will probably feel a little less fatigued. You will feel less nauseous, I hope, for your your sake. And so you might be able to kick it up a notch during that time. And then at some point when you get into the third trimester, you'll start feeling more weighed down by the baby, that sense of being just huge and, and having random aches and pains that make it harder. But yeah, a run walk can still work. I mean, I did, in fact, run every day with my running streak during my pregnancy with Henry. But by the end, it was very, very slow. I'm not sure that somebody looking at it would consider it much of a run at all. It was nowhere near that 9.30 to 10-minute mile pace. But it didn't have to be. It was just about feeling like I was still able to move my body, still able to get that energy boost, that mood boost that comes from exercise, which is really what it's all about, taking care of of your body, taking care of your baby by exercising and doing something that's healthy for you. It doesn't need to be about pushing at all. Because the good news is after you get that baby out of you and a couple weeks later, you will probably be able to start gearing back up again, especially if you have been maintaining some sort of exercise during pregnancy. It will come back. You will have great times in the future. We've all just watched the Olympics where Allison Felix says, you know, hugs her two-year-old after setting world records. You probably won't do that. 
But if she can come and set a world record after having a baby, it certainly shows that having a baby does not end your fitness forever. So take heart from that and get back out there afterwards and and go run your marathon then. All right. Well, this has been Best of Both Worlds. We've been talking work tips. We had a quick interview with Helena Weiss-Duman about how to have great meetings. We will be back next week with more on making work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.